welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guests are Adam Meekins and Chad Cook. A feature of the Shoulder Physio podcast is to host debates or conversations between people with apparently opposing viewpoints on certain topics within the physiotherapy and sports medicine landscape. One could say that the topic of today's debate manual therapy inspires more emotional and passionate conversation than any other. So to cut through the Twitter arguments and often confusing recommendations in the literature, I've invited a famous manual therapy critic, Adam Meekins, and a famous manual therapy proponent, Chad Cook, onto the podcast to discuss manual therapy in a pragmatic, open, and honest way. This conversation was originally recorded in March 2021 for my YouTube show on the shoulders of giants. Without any further delay, I bring to you the great manual therapy debate between Adam Meekins and Chad Cook. Hello and welcome to everybody around the world and to Adam Meekins and and Chad Cook specifically. This is the much anticipated conversation or showdown between Adam Meekins and Chad Cook on the eternally polarizing topic of manual therapy and its role in physical therapy. Chad, I believe it's 7 a.m. your time over in the USA. So thanks for getting up early and and chatting with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Adam, it's a a politer midday over in London. So thanks for, for going a beer at the pub or more likely the backyard, thanks coronavirus, and chatting about a topic that you're a notorious critic of, and that's manual therapy. So thanks, mate, for getting involved. Uh, thanks for the invite. I am looking forward to this. Should be fun. Beautiful. So to get things underway and to give everybody a little bit of a context about this discussion, I'm going to briefly introduce to both of you. Now, this is my introduction. I've done my research. You guys haven't given me a bio of yourselves. So I'm going to start with Chad. Chad is a renowned academician out of Duke University in North Carolina in the US. Chad has more than 300 academic publications to his name, around 50 of which directly address manual therapy, which is the topic of today. Chad has also authored three textbooks on manual therapy and orthopedic physical examination. Chad is an undisputed thought leader and luminary of the profession of physical therapy, not just an academic though. Chad has also spent time working as a clinician and teaches a manual therapy course internationally. Consequently, Chad is well positioned to speak on the apparent truths or mistruths of manual therapy. All right, that was, that was, uh, that was a mouthful. Adam's is even longer. So let's get into Adam Meekins. So Adam Meekins, I don't think needs any introduction. If ever there was a celebrity physiotherapist, it's Adam. Adam has risen to prominence over the past decade due to his direct and occasionally controversial and abrasive approach to dogmatic aspects of both the physiotherapy profession and the health and fitness sector more broadly. Adam garners attention wherever he goes on social media, both positive and negative, but this doesn't seem to deter or slow him down. Adam has amassed over 100,000 followers on Instagram and 70,000 on Twitter, 
and has also published papers in peer-reviewed journals. Metaphorically speaking, Adam can be likened to a hot knife slicing through butter in his savage attacks on practices he disagrees with and often leaves others reeling in his wake. Manual therapy has borne the brunt of his ferocity over the years in several blogs and podcasts. As such, Adam too is well-placed to speak on manual therapy. Okay, so some context wow. for today's I, I, discussion. I don't think I've ever been called a hot knife through butter before. That's the first one. Thanks, thanks for that, Jared. That was good. <laughs> so some context for today's discussion. So Adam and Chad, as you're all possibly aware, have been engaged in some online back and forth over the last few months about manual therapy. Now, given they're both eminent thinkers of the physiotherapy profession, I thought it would be productive for these two to sit down bash out their differences in a formal face-to-face discussion for the good of the ordinary physio, of which I count myself as one, who may be deliberating and debating the efficacy and effectiveness of manual therapy and whether they should or shouldn't be applying it in their own clinical practice. Now, this is what the whole point of today's discussion is all about. So with any, without any further ado, let's dive into the first question. And the first question it seems like a logical place to start. What is manual therapy? Do we have a consensus definition of manual therapy? Where does this hands-off, hands-off, uh, hands-on, hands-off debate come into it? Let's explore this. Adam, I'll start with you. Uh, so I think the simple answer is I don't think there's a consensus of what manual therapy is. I think if you were to get you know, a group of manual therapists in the room and say, what is manual therapy? I think a lot of them will say different things. I think there'll be a core element that is agreed on. Uh, And so for me, I think, you know, when I talk about manual therapy, I'm talking about the the formalized types of treatment that are believed to be, have to be done in a specific way to create specific outcomes. So I'm talking about things, you know, specific types of soft tissue massage to release certain types of tissue that have to be done for a certain amount of duration with a certain amount of force in a certain direction. And then I would also incorporate in manual therapy, again, the joint uh, manual therapy techniques. So the mobilizations that again are thought to have to be done in a specific way to create specific outcomes. So working on specific joints, specific levels of the vertebrae, pushing in a certain direction at a certain amplitude, at a certain velocity, et cetera. And again, of course, you know, your high velocity uh, manipulations, low amplitude manipulations, HVLAs would also be another type of joint, you know, technique that I would incorporate under the umbrella of manual therapy. And then you've got your sort of offshoots, you know, you could also incorporate, I think they're really under manual therapy, things like probably dry needling and even probably taping, passive treatments, again, that are thought to have to be done in a specific way to a patient to get uh, some sort of specific outcome. But for me, my core principles when I discuss manual therapy are all the soft tissue techniques, your massages, your myofascial releases, etc., which there are probably, you know, 300 different terms and names of that. Um, and then your joint mobilizations and manipulations, they'll be my core things of what I'd class as manual therapy. And to put it into manual therapy is a specific techniques done in a specific way to get a specific outcome. Okay. A specific technique done in a specific way to get a specific outcome. Chad, would you agree with that? I think it's suffered from a common terminology for a long time. And I'm in agreement with Adam that I think there's not, that I agree that if you get a, a lot of manual therapists together, you get a very 
different answers on what this terminology is. I think if you look at the professional bodies, they've described it as skilled techniques. Uh, if you go to Wikipedia, which is a, a higher level of um, evidence, it, it will include everything in Eastern culture and essentially everything under the sun. So I, I'm in agreement that it, it has a uh, it has a terminology problem, but I think it has which contributes to its reputation problem because there's a lot of uh, odd things that fall into that list. I am aware that AOMPT and IFOMPT is looking at developing a more modern definition of manual therapy, which will include uh, more of the processing, the assessment, how you go about looking at someone. Um, and I think that's very welcomed. Uh, so I, I think it's hard to put a label on it. Uh, you know, I hope we get a chance to talk about specificity and having to do it a certain way, because I think that's uh, really rich for discussion. If we can get to that later or now or whenever. Okay, cool. So would you agree, Chad, that dry needling, perhaps acupuncture, all of these types of modalities, taping even would come under the banner of manual therapy? I would not. Um, dry needling, acupuncture, taping, I think, have similar principles to manual therapy, where a lot of uh, theories behind it. But I think technique-wise and the approach is a little bit different. Um, but nonetheless, I do think that, you know, if you get, I think there's a lot of common language spoken. It's like Canadian French and French French with respect to dry needling and manual therapy. So I, th I think there's some overlap there. But in my mind, dry needling is not manual therapy. Okay. So when you're thinking manual therapy, what are you thinking? I think of it as an approach. Um, it, it's very much, you know, I just don't think about techniques because to me, it's a full package. Uh, when I assess someone, I look for whether or not pain modulation might be a valuable input to their system as I progress them toward what they need. Um, I look at the patient in the bigger picture. And I, I think more people are looking at, you know, where does the patient fit in in that communication between the patient and the therapist and whether manual therapy needs to be part of that. Um, so I, I look at it in a broader context, I think. I'm not even sure that I could put it down on a piece of paper and exactly what it is, but I'm hoping I'm on two task force. So I'm hoping we get it sorted out. Adam, do you have anything to add there, Mike? Yeah, I think, again, you know, another definition that's sometimes used is anything where a therapist places their hands onto a patient. So, you know, the, the therapy of touch is sometimes classed as manual therapy. And I think, you know, this is my position often gets misrepresented hugely when I'm a critic of specific manual therapy techniques in being misrepresented as saying that that means we shouldn't touch patients. And that's something I just want to clear up as well. I do not incorporate the role of palpation and touch in an assessment and an examination as part of manual therapy. So I think, again, that is commonly misinterpreted, misrepresented, confused in my position when I'm saying that manual therapy has some issues in its way it's been taught, in the way it's been taught and teached to physios, in the way it's explained to patients. But that doesn't mean we suddenly stop touching patients because we all know, and the evidence tells us, you know, therapeutic touch is beneficial. It does help patients. It can reassure them. You know, I don't think there's anything worse than hearing a patient saying the last guy didn't even look at it, let alone touch it. So I am a keen advocate of using palpation and touch 
uh, and differentiating that from formal specific manual therapy. Where I think it sometimes, as I say, gets a bit confusing is when, you know, touch starts to be, you know, directed in that specific way to then believe to get those specific outcomes. That's the bit I challenge and question a lot about, but I don't refute the benefits of touching patients when they've got pain. Yeah, good. Okay, so I think the next question is going to get to this specificity uh, question that, that we all want to touch on. So just to conclude that question, therapeutic touch is important, Adam. You, you will, yep. you, you, that's, that's, that's something that you certainly agree with. However, yep. what you question is that whether it needs to be done in this specific manner, in a specific direction, direction et cetera, et cetera, to achieve a specific outcome. That's yeah, absolutely. You you know, but my, my frustrations is, is that I find manual therapy, uh, say, is, is believed and taught to a lot of physiotherapists as still having to be done in a specific way to create these specific outcomes. Mm -hmm. And and I know things take a while to change, but, you know, this stuff has been going on, in my opinion, way too long and is still quite prevalent in a lot of the manual therapy training in universities and in postgraduate courses. The belief that, you know, you have to stand in a certain position, you have to push something in a certain direction at a certain amplitude, at a certain force to create a so-called specific tissue effect. When actually, you know, we know that manual therapy based on the research and the clinical evidence doesn't work that way. I mean, there's numerous trials that have compared, you know, sham applied manual therapy versus specific manual therapy. And we don't see significant difference in the outcomes, you know, just the top of my head. The neck one was the Aquino paper from 2009. Uh, there's uh, multiple ones done on the lumbar spine. There's been some studies looking at MWMs as well uh, in the peripheral joints. And again, finding no real difference whether you do a randomly selected technique versus a so-called therapist specific selected technique. Yet I do still find that, say, a lot of these <clears throat> beliefs about the specificity are still rife they're still being taught currently um, and, and I find again the other problem I have is that that amount of time that it takes to teach a physiotherapist these so-called specific techniques I think is is a waste of time it, it is unfortunately I think clogging up the curriculums in physiotherapy teaching uh, practices and I think what it's doing is also distracting a lot of physiotherapists away from time that could be spent on other things that they would be more useful at I mean just for example I know most physiotherapists if you ask them you know from you know day one of the graduation could show you a grade three unilateral mobilization on a supposedly stiff L4-5 segment yet they probably couldn't tell you or demonstrate to you how to communicate really well with a patient that's frustrated, that's distressed in pain because their time has been spent a lot more manual therapy training than effective communication skills. And likewise, you know, with soft tissue techniques, you ask a physiotherapist after graduation, could you show me something that releases this piece of fascia? And they'll probably show you 33 techniques that have been picked up on their training. Yeah, if you were to ask them, could you show me 33 different types and ways and means of loading somebody who's got a painful knee joint, they would struggle to do that. So again, I just think that, again, my, my frustration with manual therapy is the time wasted in training, the need to do it in a specific technique uh, to get specific outcomes when there is no real need. Yeah, well, well said. So Chad, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. So Adam set this up really nicely. So it is unquestionable, I think, that a lot of manual therapy techniques are still being taught 
most institutions all around the world as highly specific, highly skilled interventions. Why do you think this is the case? And is there any evidence that manual therapy must be applied specifically to achieve a specific outcome? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll start with the why. And I think that's probably philosophy and guru driven. And, and I've said this in the past, I don't mean to be um, negative toward a lot of the pioneers in manual therapy, but they were truly building a plane as they were flying it. And they created these philosophies that matched what they felt was going on. And the rigidity of those philosophies has not been removed by a lot of modern manual therapists. They've stuck with the same philosophies. Something somebody said 50, 100 years ago that was based on faulty biomechanical constructs. And you know, I've written about this before in some of my first publications where I tackled Friat's law, what a crap law that is. And you know, just a lot of these principles that really have not held up to modern science. So um, I'm in agreement there. Primarily, too, that the evidence is not borne out that it needs to be a specific technique. I, I know nine smaller but reasonably well-designed studies that comparatively assess, as Adam said, either a randomly selected technique or a, um, a, a placebo-based mobilization versus a therapist-selected technique, including one of ours, which we published in 2016 in JOSPT. We even tried to set it up so that the placebo was so bad that the, the manual therapy technique that was selected by the therapist would be better. And we didn't see any differences in self-reported health outcomes. We did see a difference in the GROC, and, but the GROC measures something differently. And, and that's, worth, that's more of a patient uh, expectation, patient experience type measure. Um, there are two studies that have actually shown that, that the GROC changes, but the self-report measures don't. So the specificity for self-report outcomes, such as your legacy measures, you haven't seen a difference with that. Emily Slavin did do a meta-analysis and showed that it does seem to be trending toward specificity at the neck, but it only included two studies and that needs to be further investigation. The back, no way. Non-specific techniques tend to have as much value as a specific technique, I, I think we know enough about that right now that we don't need to investigate that any further. Um, and, and that's all right. As far as, you know, Adam had mentioned, there's a lot of time baked into education. I think there's probably a bell curve on that. It probably reflects the faculty in, in that particular program. I know in the United States, uh, where I'm from, we, we have a problem in that we don't incorporate enough manual therapy in our curriculum. Um, I know that we have approximately 15 contact hours on manual therapy, but it's an elective at Duke. So you don't even have to take it. Um, other than that, you just get a smattering of it. So we're definitely not one of those. We teach a very nonspecific approach. We don't, I don't even think we teach grades. So it, it's very much, I think, university dependent. If you have someone who is a believer of a philosophy, and in my experience, it's been very much the biomechanical philosophies. Um, and there are certain regions of the, of the world. Um, I believe those individuals are steadfastly holding on to some principles that make up who they are. And, and I don't mean to be offensive, but it's, it just hasn't, like I said, borne out in modern science. The more flexible approaches, and I would, I'm not affiliated with Mulligan, but 
I think the Mulligan approach is more flexible and their assessment approach. And um, I don't think they, I think they adapt with the evidence that comes about. I think other approaches do too. So I think it really depends on the approach. You've seen one, you've seen one. Hmm. Okay, cool. So I think, I think there's a fair bit of agreement within that manual therapy probably doesn't need to be specific in order it would certainly not superior to a non-specific type technique in terms of clinical outcomes, perhaps for GROC or, or global rating of change, which is a different conversation, which, which we might get to and possibly university specific or institution specific in terms of how much time they spend uh, or devote to teaching manual therapy which is interesting. Adam, do you have any follow-up comments there? No, I, I agree with what Chad said there. You know, at the end of the day, it is variable, it is regional, it is probably, you know, dependent on institutions, like Chad says, and based on who is working and, and affiliated with those institutions. So, yeah, I do see a wide spectrum, and I don't want to tar everybody with the same brush because that often comes across as what I'm doing as well. I know that there are, are many rational evidence-based manual therapists out there using manual therapy in a very reasonable, pragmatic way. Uh, I just find them in the minority. There are the majority out there, the institutions out there, particularly postgraduate institutions, you know, these things that spring up, you know, without any, you know, peer review, without any sort of, you know, accreditation or affiliation or ways of checking quality. Uh, these individuals, as I say, are very much driven by other reasons, mainly financial and again, they're still going off what Chad said, which is these gurus that have, you know, come up with ideas, pioneers back in the day who didn't know any better. And as Chad said, you know, we don't demonize them. We we very much, you know, respect what they knew and what they did for us. But we know more now and therefore, you know, carrying on their philosophy, you know, needs to be representing and adapting to the new knowledge that we got. And a lot of the gurus in this day and age are not doing that. Yep, fair. I think that's fair. It's a, a conversation about mechanisms and how manual therapy may or may not work. Could be interesting, but I, I don't think we'll go down that that pathway. A, a question that I want to go into next is is a really interesting one to me, and I think it should be of interest to a lot of people out there, which is manual therapy and its its role or or possible role in in value based care. So. It quite often gets thrown out there that manual therapy is a low value intervention. And I want to, I want to discuss this. So where does manual therapy fit in value-based care paradigm? What evidence exists for or against it in this concept? And then finally, I want you both to answer, is manual therapy a high or low value intervention? And does it have negative long-term sequelae? Does it, does it result in any, uh, long-term harms does it lead to passive dependency reduced self-efficacy and all these things that get thrown around at manual therapy adam i'll start with you well i think that the first thing we need to do here is define the term value more i mean value to who and to what because you know when we're talking about manual therapy we could be talking about its value to society on its economical value we could be talking about its value on the size of the effect at reducing pain or disability or are we talking about its value to the clinician in terms of their training, their beliefs and their professional identity as a healthcare professional? Are we talking about its value to the patient in terms of their expectations or their experiences on pain and disability? Because they are all very different things and they all have different values. 
Um, an analogy I often use here is, is McDonald's. I mean, for example, if we were to judge a McDonald's on its economical value and its consumer satisfaction value, I think we would class it as an incredibly high value, cheap and tasty food source. However, if we were to judge a McDonald's on its value of its nutritional quality and its long-term health benefits, I think we'd all agree and say that it's a very low value quality food source. Uh, so the value of a McDonald's can vary uh, based on who you're looking at and who and what you're looking at. And that's no different with manual therapy. So there is no doubt that some patients and some clinicians as well highly value manual therapy as it can produce some small but significant short-lasting reductions in pain and disability from time to time in some circumstances. No disagreement from me there whatsoever. However, does that make manual therapy a high-value treatment option in general? I would argue no. So this is where I come across and often say that manual therapy is a low-value intervention. Because just like McDonald's can give you short-term satisfaction, you wouldn't consider regularly having one or recommend it to others as a good long-term nutritional food supplement. So instead, as a responsible healthcare professional, I'm sure most of us would advise against anybody eating a McDonald's regularly, if at all. And I feel this is no real difference from manual therapy. You just can't judge the value of a treatment on how good it makes a patient feel just like you wouldn't judge how good a McDonald's is on its nutritional quantity, just how good it tastes. So as I say, there is no argument for me that manual therapy can make things feel nice, but what effects does that have in the long term? Are we focusing so much on the benefits in the short term of making things feel nice temporarily and actually losing sight of what that could be affecting into the long-term effect? Now, I'll be quite open and honest, and I'm sure Chad will probably pick up on this, that we haven't got much data on what this is doing in the long term we don't know is the simple answer i have opinions i have views uh, that i can't really back up that i think that we are over treating pain a lot and i'm not just saying manual therapy i'm not just saying physiotherapists i'm talking about healthcare in general but i think we are too busy at the moment currently in our society at looking to reduce pain unnecessarily when we should be doing the opposite we should be you know compassionately calmly reassuring patients with clear concise information that the pain is not dangerous it's not harmful has a favorable natural history it doesn't need to be reduced and removed it would actually be better to be dealt with and be you know exposed to become more resilient and robust to it one of the theories i have about the increase in chronic pain epidemic is because not because we're not finding the right treatments for pain because we're constantly trying to reduce it too much. We are, as a society, becoming less and less tolerant to pain because we look for the massage, we look for the manual therapy, we look for the paracetamol or the Tylenol, or whatever you want to call them, too quickly, too often. And I think, you know, as, as society, as a human race, we are losing our resilience to things that hurt and feel uncomfortable from time to time. So my argument here, as I say, is when it comes to manual therapy, it's a low-value treatment. Uh, based on those factors don't judge it just by how nice it feels and how satisfied it makes patients because that's a shitty way to judge a healthcare intervention instead perhaps let's look at the longer term consequences and pictures but we haven't got any evidence to say what that's pointed to in one way or the other as far as i know adam you're sounding like a uh, politician that's good health policy over there you've uh <laughs> i quite like it you've, uh, the tories need a new leader over there you should you, you should put your hand uh, up I'm okay. definitely not tory mate no way no way <laughs> Okay, Chad. So, the right of reply. So, Adam, I like I like the McDonald's analogy. So, 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 Chad, do you have any ideas on 
what does value mean in 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 healthcare? Do we do we do you have a specific definition that that you could apply? And and where do you see manual therapy as fitting within a low or high value uh, treatment? So I think it's important to recognize that value-based care, the definition is evolving. Uh, historically, it has been the amount of outcome for the cost of treatment. Um, it, it has been devoid of any patient input on what is value, and it's purely been based on health status measures and the amount of cost that went into that. If that was the way we should measure it, then the most valuable treatment we have is natural history. And just leaving the patient alone, it doesn't cost anything, and they tend to get better on their own. So most people recognize that that's too limited of a definition. Nonetheless, there are quite a few cost-effectiveness research studies that do show that manual therapy is more cost-effective than supervised exercise, than a behavioral approach, as Adam kind of mentioned um, near the end. But do we have enough? No. I think, obviously, we need to look further into that. And it primarily wins in cost-effectiveness because there are fewer treatments involved with that particular patient. So value-wise, with respect to cost-effective, yeah, it's it's actually valuable. Value-wise, as far as downstream healthcare, that needs to be sorted out further. Uh, what we do know is, unfortunately, a supervised exercise program, a lifestyle modification, behavioral modification, any cognitive behavioral approach, the downstream adherence to that and long-term benefit is actually poor. And it's partially poor because we think by going in and modifying patient level factors, it's gonna make a big enough difference to change overall health status of the patient. And in reality, it's probably more societal, social, public policy related elements that are gonna influence that person's ability to thrive later on. So on my end of it, you know, this, this idea that manual therapy is a low value care essentially came out of two narratives who took every passive approach and threw it in low value and every active approach and threw it in a higher value. And again, they, you run the risk with narratives of getting you know, some opinion leaders to drive how things move forward. In reality, it hasn't been sorted out enough. If you ask me right now, I would be the, a true researcher and say we need more information on this. But with respect to how I categorize manual therapy, how I use it, you know, two, maybe three visits is a pain modulatory segue to a more of an active approach with heavy lifestyle modification, trying to change the behaviors of the patient, working on pain interference versus pain intensity, because I'm in full agreement with that in there, that we're, we're losing the battle trying to get rid of pain intensity. It's really about helping them live with pain and, and helping them self-modify their pain and their perceptions of pain then I would say that there is that it's a high value therapy because it's inexpensive. You can do it fairly quickly and you can add it to other elements, which on in theory should be high value, but really haven't hasn't really borne out like a lot of people uh, claim they are. It's easy to say that exercise is the best intervention until you actually look at the literature and, the, and it's not this silver bullet that we had hoped it to be. Adam? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree when you say that comparing manual therapy's effects on pain to exercise doesn't show any difference. And, I, and I'll be the first to agree that I think exercise for pain has a lot of limitations. 
and um, for various different reasons. One, I think, is because, again, and this is just my bias, is that we do a poor job at prescribing exercise or explaining exercise to people yes, as to why they, yeah, as to why they need to do it. And and we believe again that there needs to be a lot of specificity. Uh, and again, like manual therapy, there doesn't appear to be the case. You know, when we look at exercise, we can use it in a very non-specific way and tap into a lot of beneficial effects that way. Um, so yeah, there's no argument from me there that I'm comparing manual therapy against exercise. Although I'm a huge advocate of exercise, as I'm sure everybody here is, you know, we've got to recognize that it doesn't perform any better than anything else for people with pain and pathology. So I agree with that. I'm just interested in what Chad said about he thinks manual therapy is relatively inexpensive because I don't know where he goes to get his manual therapy from. But in my experience, I, I find that most half hour sessions, 60 minute sessions with a physiotherapist doing the pokey pokey, pressy pressy, rubby dubby stuff is not cheap uh, compared to going to have a hot water bottle on your back or going to have a couple of paracetamol or whatever. I, I don't think I would class it as inexpensive. I think it's actually quite expensive. Yeah, I think it's when it's compared to other interventions. I'm sorry, I've got a son shooting me in the face right now. But um, the, I think it's when it's in, compared to other typical interventions and the cost effect in the studies, it shows that it's inexpensive in comparison. Now, those sorry surgery and injections is that what you mean chad no it's actually supervised exercise a cognitive behavioral approach a graded exercise approach a home exercise program because the you you have to factor in the improvement that you see versus the comparative group for the cost and that's actually how they analyze it so cost effectiveness studies actually supported from what we have right now but i'll be the first to say Yes, there are studies out there, and I'm happy to share those references, by the way. Everybody should. I'm from the United States. You should fact check me. Our politicians have a history of not telling the truth, but I'm happy to share the, the references that I do have. It's not near enough, and we need to further tease out value-based care to include the patient's voice and what is actually valuable. And I think it's really important to know that patients want pain modulatory elements. They want to know what's wrong with them. They want to know how they can address their pain, whether it be through a clinician or themselves, typically both, and they want another prognosis. So in many cases, I think part of that package of value, if we include the patient, has to include some pain modulatory component. And I firmly believe that. I believe it because most patients believe that. Adam, any, any last thoughts on, on value-based care? Again, I'm just going to go back to that analogy. I, I get the understanding of needing to get patients' feedback and views as to you know what makes good value treatment for pain. I do understand that, but and we'll probably get onto this in the next question around you know patient centeredness. Are patients experts enabled to actually judge what is best for them? I do understand we need their feedback, but at the end of the day, I think they also need guidance and support from healthcare professionals so i i have a little bit of a say of a, an issue here when it comes to listening to patients and just doing whatever they want or expect or say which i'm sure is not what many do but 
I just think we've got to be, we, we're treading a fine line. We've got to be very careful with, you know, patients' beliefs and expectations of what they want from their treatment, because often what they want isn't what they really need. And again, I'll go back to the McDonald's analogy. Everybody wants a McDonald's. You know, it's tasty. It's lovely. Who doesn't want one? But is it really good to have a McDonald's? So, Adam, do you think exercise is a high value intervention? For pain? For no. pain. No. So no do we have any high value no interventions for pain? Mm, again, I suppose it depends on the population and what type of pain we're talking about. I mean, when it comes to exercise, I think it's high value, not because of its effects on pain, but because of its effects on a person. So I, I play the secondary benefits card a lot here. I, I often say that we've got things that work equally well for pain. You know, the issue with pain is that not that nothing works. It's that fucking everything works. All right. And so we've got to look at other things that can help with pain, but also probably have more beneficial secondary benefits around it. And, you know, the benefit, the secondary benefits of getting people to be more active and engage in exercise, they're going to far outweigh any secondary benefits of having a massage or some joint mobilizations or a manipulation. So, again, I, I say everything, you know, on an equal par when it comes to helping pain looks pretty even. But what about looking beyond the effects on pain? What about the other secondary benefits? Jad, any thoughts? Yeah. Um... You know, on, on paper, secondary benefits are going to trump everything. In life, they don't because the adherence is not there. The carryover effects aren't there. The behavioral change isn't there. The lifestyle modification isn't there. You're not changing social factors. You're not changing just challenges that have to be addressed through public policy. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm with Adam. If, if, if we could elevate something, the golden cap is exercise and lifestyle modification. And, but in reality, it just doesn't, it doesn't bore out. If we look at patient expectations, they are the strongest predictor of outcomes for a number of musculoskeletal elements, including surgery. So the, if trying to change patient expectations, and I'm in a big trial right now, we've been in it for two and a half years, it's incredibly difficult to change someone's expectation of what they need. And you can spend a lot of time talking to them about changing or you can be a creative clinician and incorporate a little bit of what they think they need and expect, but bake in those other things that we hope have secondary benefits. We know we're not making major strict changes in the short time that we see our patients. I think the good folks in Great Britain see their patients probably even shorter than what we do in the United States. So at best, if we can lead them down a path and have them you know, know what to do on their own and how to to incorporate that exercise-based behavior. But if you look at the long-term studies, it just suggests we're not super successful with that. Um, so what I try to do is bake all of that in. You know, I have my, my hope that they'll carry that forward, but I also address that in a very close, connected way what the patient feels they need and what how that blends into their expectations and my thoughts as a professional, and how can we take those two things together and make them work. That's patient-centered care. Yeah, so, yeah. That's the definition of patient-centered care. So it sounds like, Chad, you're saying that if there is an expectation that manual therapy is to be provided and they've had success with it in the past, then you're not, you won't object to giving a bit of manual therapy in the right context, in the right sort of narrative and using the right rhetoric 
and and going about prescribing exercise, lifestyle change, perhaps behavior modification, all these sorts of things. But but you don't see providing manual therapy if 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 somebody requested or if somebody thinks that they need it in inverted commas, you don't think that's doing any harm. As long as there's not a risk involved in that case, as long as the patient doesn't have a maladapted thought toward that, then no, I don't see any harm in it whatsoever. Have I ever engaged a patient where I thought there was risk involved and I said, no, we're not going to do this? You bet. Have I ever talked to a patient who had just an ill-conceived thought of what they need? I had a lady one time come to me and she was treated for pelvic malalignment, which I've been a very outspoken critic of. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not the right person to work with you on that because, you know, it's against my belief system. If this is something you believe, you're probably better off finding another clinician. She divorced me, went and found another clinician. That was fine. It was a better match for her because that's what she wanted. And we could have sat and butted heads or she could find whatever she wants. And hopefully that person will, you know, carry forward and introduce the secondary effects and hopefully they, they latch on with her. Adam, I imagine this must happen a bit to you, perhaps, or maybe not now, but perhaps in the past, before you were so famous, where people were coming to you and wanting manual therapy. Look, let's face it, it is ubiquitous. Most people want it. And how do you deal with these? And how do you have these these challenging conversations with your patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think Chad just described my regular day-to-day occurrence there with that one example he had. So no, I, I definitely, and I still do come across this a lot. You know, people still seek me out online and they still want my, you know, treatment and advice. And they, they use these terms, you know, I've been told I've got this out of place. This is wrong. I need to have this push back in. I need to have this little bit released because of what they've been told by other healthcare professionals before. And just like Chad says, it's very difficult sometimes to re-educate um, people away from these false narratives and these beliefs. And it isn't easy, but I do try to the best of my ability. But am I successful all the time? Absolutely not. Um, you know, it really is, again, down to communication skills. And again, it's something that, that Chad says, you know, we, we, we don't see good compliance or adherence to things like exercise because I don't think we are taught good ways of communicating and convincing and reassuring patients when they're in pain and distress. I don't think physios are taught to communicate well in various different settings and scenarios, particularly with distressed, anxious, worried, pissed off, frustrated people. You know, so I think, again, that the effectiveness of all of our treatments could be hugely improved if we as clinicians just learn how to communicate better. We could start to break down some of these barriers, I hope, a bit more effectively. Again, you know, it's it's not easy. I'm not going to say it's a walk in the park because it isn't. The amount of patients that have, you know, given me the old stink eye when I'm trying to explain things and they've like curled their lips up and like Chad says, they've divorced me or told me to F off, which happens quite a lot in uh, the UK if you disagree with somebody. Um, it, it still happens in my clinics now, but, you know, I am getting better. I'm seeing, you know, with my reading and education around, you know, behavioral modification techniques, communication skills, using a couple of techniques that I've picked up from various different sources I, I find that i am able to interact with people that are frustrated and pissed off better and they do start to listen and trust you better as well because of that so again i think if we could 
work and get physios to learn to understand, you know, the intricacies of human communication better, I think we'll see better outcomes with our interventions, be that exercise or manual therapy based. Chad, last words? No, I, you know, I, I actually, I was disappointed in my skill set in communication and management of chronic pain and actually did a certificate program two and a half years at McGill to bump up my knowledge. So I, I, I'm in full agreement. I think the most powerful thing we have in our, in our armor, basically in our uh, arsenal is communication. And, and even if you are a lousy prescriber of exercise or a manual therapist or whatever, what I've seen is that cookie therapist, that person who has that ability to really create that therapeutic alliance, the nonspecific factors are incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, I mean, truly. It, so it, it is an incredibly valuable skill to have. And by the way, if you look at what patients want, and there are many studies that qualitatively sit down with MSK patients on that first day and say, what do you really want out of your intervention? They want to be respected. They want to have a good experience. They want to be able to tell their story. And, and a good clinician allows them to do that and actually aids that process. So again, you know, I, and I've told people before, because some people knew that we, from Twitter, that Adam and I were going to talk today. And they said, oh my God, you guys aren't, aren't going to agree on anything. I said, no, I, I think we'll probably agree on about 80% of things. Um, it's just going to be the French things. that, But communication, heck yes. Mm. So we'll, we'll throw that. Where where are you, North Carolina? Get get me over there. I need some sun. Looks good over yeah, there. I haven't seen you in about three months here in the UK. <laughs> so we'll throw out exercise prescription. We're going to throw out manual therapy. We're going to throw out cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll become master communicators, and that's going to solve it all. I think. Potentially, okay, so. yes. I don't. I don't think we have to. Th I don't think we again. I don't think we have to throw things out. I have, or I, I've abandoned certain techniques, and I've written a couple of blogs about that. But I don't. I don't go around when I teach and talk to physios, screaming at them, saying, "Stop fucking pressing people. Stop doing mobilizations," because that's not what my uh, position is at all. It's a personal choice, like Chad says. You know, you have your own as a clinician. You have your own beliefs. You have your own morals, you have your own things that you want to do. I have realized or I've come to the decision slowly, gradually over a process of time that I don't want to use any of these manual therapy treatment techniques anymore because I think the time would be better spent doing other things. Now, it's not an easy decision to make. There have been lots of barriers and problems along the way of doing that as a clinician, um, but it's a choice. It's a personal choice. So I don't think, you know, if you don't have to stop doing things to be an evidence-based clinician, to be up to date. You often just have to change the narrative around them. You know, you just have to start using them more rationally. You have to explain them more clear and conciser and, again, non-specifically. And you start to see that that can be just as beneficial. Okay, I like it. So let's let's move on to the next question. And this is a this is a doozy. And Adam, this is something that, grinds your gears often i think so so manual therapy has been accused of being mired in an elitist and egotistical culture with the manual therapists often placing themselves in a position of power as a fixer healer rather than a facilitator guide i guess do you agree with this i'm going to throw this to you chad do you agree with this and why is this the case and could it in fact 
be harmful where manual therapy is fixing and healing and are we taking away their own uh, pain self-efficacy in regards to this? Yeah, there's a lot to that. So, you know, Adam's probably experienced the elitism and, and I'm going to, I'm not going to lie. I, I think it was worse in the eighties and nineties when I trained because I experienced it too. And again, we, we, we touched on this before. I think certain philosophies are a little bit more dogmatic and um, condemning of any variant of their approach. Um, very much the biomechanical philosophies, which are, that's a house of cards right there because they're, they're hanging on to things that just don't really exist. So I've experienced that as well. Um, it, it's very similar to a trialist. If you, in research, in the research world, the trialist is the elitist. There's nothing but randomized trials. There are no other studies that lend value to anything. Um, so yeah, I've, I've experienced that too. The second piece to that is, can it be detrimental to the patient? I think the story that is told to the patient can be detrimental. And um, I, I have no problems with my chiropractic colleagues, but, and, and by the way, good on them for releasing the recent papers that basically suggest that it does not, that manipulation does not change cancer and all these other elements. Their thought leaders came forward and said, it's time to stop. Um, the traditional historic chiropractic philosophy, and my brother was a chiropractor, so I know this, really told a lot of stories to patients, which I think led to some potentially negative um, recidivism, patients constantly seeking out caregivers for an adjustment. Those, that sort of language needs to stop. I think the modern manual therapist is primarily using, at least the ones I'm affiliated with, using any manual therapy approach as a pain modulator and as a segue to moving forward with that patient. I think that is not a negative way to go because they're using it in a patient-centered care format. Um, it, but it really is how it's staged and how it's used. And again, that's going to be a bell curve depending on the interactions that one has with certain types of manual therapists. Historically, I think it was pretty bad. Um, I manual therapy shocked until I found a philosophy that I actually felt was less abrasive, less dogmatic, less full of shit, and then uh, targeted that approach. Um, because I was looking for something because pain management, pain modulation is a powerful thing for many patients. And without going to a start, sidebar, there is evidence that that between session change makes a difference. We, we published a paper in 2017, six month outcomes. It had anywhere from odds from four to six times more likely to improve. Is it because of manual therapy? I think it's probably more because of the patient and it could be another approach, but that is very powerful to a patient to show that you can make a difference in their pain and then teach them how to make a difference. So I think it's how it's framed. And I think there's a historical overlap that is slowly going away, um, but we need to continue to stay on it to make sure that those theories are gone. Adam. Yeah, again, lots to discuss there. So like Chad says, I was also exposed to a lot of elitism and, you know, guruness with my manual therapy training. I was very much wanting to, you know, learn all its intricacies and its technical skills and become the Jedi master. 
of it all. And um, yeah, I just found it horrendously off-putting. And that's pretty much what started my kickback against it. I became very frustrated at all these individuals walking around with this air of superiority and arrogance because they believed they could do these things that I didn't think they could or the evidence didn't prove they could. And I started to kick back against it. And I still do kick back against it because I do see it's still quite prevalent in this day and age as well. Um, but to get back to, you know, the other point about, you know, manual therapy being, you know, helping people that may have a better outcome because you can reduce their pain. You can demonstrate to them, you know, that there are improvements being made in between sessions. I agree with that. I think, you know, there is a role there for, you know, demonstrating to somebody that their pain is changeable. And then, as we know, somebody that does have changeable pain is more likely to have a favorable natural history. So I think there is role here for us to use techniques to demonstrate to people that they can work around pain. Their pain can be changed and that can sometimes be very, very powerful, but that doesn't have to be with manual therapy. So you can use lots of different techniques and tips and tricks and things to do to modulate somebody's pain you don't have to touch them you can just ask them to move in a different way you can change the context of the movement you can just reassure them and give them good again education if you've got those communication skills and the patient trusts and believes what you say you can make them feel better just by walking out one of my mentors from many many years ago god rest his soul louis gifford famously said it you know effective reassurance is a bloody good painkiller so I, I am a believer of what Chad said there. Yep, great. Try to get pain to change in the patients you see. Absolutely. It's powerful if you can do that. But then look at the other side of the flip coin. What about the ones that don't? Are we writing those off? Are we saying, you know, oh, well, you know, they're, they're not going to be having such a favorable natural history. Do we set them up for failure? And I think sometimes we're guilty of that as well. So again, I just want us to be a little bit careful when we look for you know, short term, quick changes in pain that, yes, it's powerful, but we don't write those off that don't get those effects. Chad? Yeah, I, you know, I tend to look at those individuals that don't seem to be pain adaptive as two ways. One, they probably need a different approach. Uh, one that is going to most likely be a little bit longer. One that is going to take more cognitive behavioral elements, I think. One that may be uh, best assisted by medical intervention too, because those populations tend to do better with the medicative approach as well. And also it's prognostic. I, I know that it's going to be a longer outcome. And since patients want prognosis, you know, one of the things you can say is, you know, there are some things that we've identified here. This may not be a recovery in one week, two weeks that we commonly see. So we're going to have to do some things that are different. And then we'll spend some time going into those behavioral elements, those modification components, the cognitive elements like that. I know this is a discussion about manual therapy, but I'm just uh, very surprised that there isn't a similar discussion about psychologically informed interventions and, and how quickly everybody accepted these despite nominal research and support especially research among physios. Um, I have a lot of colleagues that are psychologists and I said, you have a wonderful opportunity because you can both use psychological interventions, which have a very small effect and physical interventions, which also have a small effect and maybe get a combined element from that. 
So I, I think manual therapy is sometimes targeted with respect to um, a lot of good reasons, but as an intervention, its outcome is quite similar to exercise. It's quite similar to cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not really superior or inferior to any other intervention, and they're all better than nothing. And, and that's essentially what the literature tells us. Adam? Yeah, I can understand why Chad thinks manual therapy is probably unfairly targeted because of the, you know, bubbles we all tend to circulate in and the sort of echo chambers we listen to. And, you know, if you start engaging on social media, you start to follow certain individuals and they all start to retweet and hash things around. But I actually don't see manual therapy being targeted, critiqued, lambasted enough compared to other things in my experience. So I, I, I will still say that I see a lot of plaudits, advocates, you know, people pushing manual therapy up onto pedestals where it doesn't deserve to be. I, I find very few strong, staunch critics of manual therapy, questioners of manual therapy, because it's bloody hard to do so from my own personal experience, again, because of the elitism and arrogance and egos. So it can be very daunting to start to challenge the so-called manual therapy beliefs. So I don't see a lot of people having the gumption to do it. And I don't blame them because it can be quite nasty and toxic to do so. And again, I know a lot of people say, you know, well, that's probably based on how you do it and how you interact with it. But I've tried over the years to critique things, you know, bluntly, directly to the point, not skirting around the issues. I've also tried to do it politely and respectfully. And uh, it, I always seem to get the same kickback response no matter how I do it. Um, and and I also don't when I don't I don't agree with what Chad says is that we don't critique exercise enough. I am seeing more and more critics of exercise now, and I think it's a good thing. Um, but I am seeing again there is now a lot of people challenging you know the motor control paradigm, the corrective exercise paradigm, the belief you have to do it in a specific way to help specific things with certain types of pathologies. So I, I, I disagree that we don't critique things equally enough. I, I see it from a different angle. I think manual therapy still gets away with a lot compared to other things. Chad, last words? No, I mean, this that's Adam's experience, so I can't debate that. Um, you know, he's got a good point about exercise. My concern was a lot of the cognitive, psychologically informed approaches, which, I mean, if we look at the literature on that, there is no one dominant successful approach through shared mechanisms that all have a similar outcome regardless of what angle they go in and as a profession worldwide we absolutely with open arms just said tell us what we need to do without questioning any of the evidence behind this i, I went on a, a podcast one time and uh, i think the person thought i was going to just sing the praises of cognitive behavioral therapy and i said well let's talk about its limitations and there are a lot. Uh, and in many cases, it, especially those provided by physios and occupational therapists, the outcomes aren't any different than a comparative intervention, whether that would be exercise or, or manual therapy. And, and again, that's because of shared mechanisms. It, it's just that there are many different ways to get to London, right? A lot of streets go to London and they all have a, a very similar outcome. But they don't move. But no, I can't debate what Adam has experienced. Hey, I, I do want to mention that the earliest publications in my career 
were affiliated with questioning a lot of the typical manual therapy dogma. We attacked coupling. We looked at it in the thoracic, cervical, and lumbar. I mean, we looked at roll, spin, and slide. The how these manual therapists came to these biomechanical theories. They were using wooden blocks to try to mimic movements of the body, or very unsophisticated, non-scientific methods. And, and to me, that was just unacceptable. So I ran into a lot of the same pushback where people were just close-minded. They would not even listen. And I was quoting science. I was like, no, so we've got these RSA studies that actually show that, you know, the sacroiliac joint does not flop around like a piece of paper. And they're like, oh, that those studies are flawed because it's like, no, they're not. Um, it's It's pretty remarkable. So I understand where he's coming from. And a lot of the concerns that, but from what I'm hearing, they're valid concerns. Um, I, my area is, is, I think my world of manual therapy is more of a gray, moderate world. I, I don't, um, I'm not an extremist with respect to what I think it does. Um, I think I've called it the ibuprofen of the physical therapy world. I think it does a nice job of pain modulation and uh, it gets you, it gives you the ability to move on to something different. Okay, that's where we're gonna, good. I pretty much agree with both of you there. There is, I think there is an elitist culture associated with manual therapy still. I still think there are dodgy pseudoscientific explanations for what manual therapy does out there. And it's far more commonplace uh, than we think. I've experienced it weekly um, in my clinical practice and it's, it, it is still pervasive. So that's something that we must change. And I think you both are important in dispelling some of these myths. So, so thank you for the work that you do there. But in terms of, um, in terms of the, 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 the clinical outcomes, in terms of approaches to modulate pain, that's an interesting discussion. And I, again, I find myself agreeing with both of you. Manual therapy can be used. Movement can be used. Interaction can be used. I think there's many different ways to skin a cat there. So I don't think there's any point arguing that one to death let's move on to the next question which is patient-centered care or shared decision making so can we incorporate manual therapy into this model of shared decision making or patient-centered care or does this simply imply that therapists are just surrendering and, and simply giving people what they want and not what they need coming back to adam's mcdonald's analogy so is there any evidence for this affecting clinical outcomes by, by not giving people what they need, perhaps, or giving people what they need? So, uh, Adam, I'll throw this one over to you, mate. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I think it's about, you know, giving patients what they want, not what they need. So are, are we just, you know, you know, putting the patient in the center and, say, asking them, you know, these are all the possible treatments you could have. Which one would you like? You pick. It's, it's a it's a menu you know take your list you want two of those and three of those and one of those and then we'll put it all together is that what we mean by patient centeredness i don't think so i think you know that can be recipe for disaster particularly you know if you wouldn't see it in any other aspect of healthcare you would not see a cancer specialist 
going and explaining you've got cancer to a patient here's all the treatment options that we could do and then throwing in there well you could go for a bit of reiki you could take your homeopathy as well because that's you know been claimed by the homeopaths to help you know with your cancer treatment you would not see a rational evidence-based cancer specialist doing that and i think you know i know the risks are different obviously with musculoskeletal health but we shouldn't just be you know putting out everything onto the table and saying to the patient that these are all the options. There's a smogger's board of choice. You know, you just pick and choose what we want. Patients need options for sure. And they need to have some guidance and some assistance in making those options correctly. So I, I don't really like the term patient-centered care. I know it's all a bit of a buzzword at the moment, um, but I, I'd actually prefer the term patient-focused care. You know, I think it just changes the narrative of saying that we, we are focusing on you. You're the person that this matters to, but when we're not really, and again, I know this analogy is probably used differently for different people. We're not putting you in the driving seat. We are here to help you, okay, make the right decisions and the choices for this particular situation that you're in. Um, so again, for me, I think it's just finding that balance of, you know, presenting as unbiasedly as you can, all the treatment options to the patient, explaining through the benefits, the risks, the alternatives, you know, what happens if you don't do anything? Do you need this treatment? Is it necessary? Is it essential? All of these things I think are needed to be done to truly use or say that you are fully informing the patient, you're giving them full informed consent of the treatment and letting them make a focused choice, an evidence-based guided focused choice as to which suits their particular desires, expectations, beliefs better. Chad? Yeah, I mean, we had something called Obamacare here in the um, early 2010s, and basically it, it mandated shared decision-making and patient-centered care. And I was like, okay, what is this? And so Yannick uh, Tusegnola Flem and I actually did a systematic review of all of the musculoskeletal studies in 2017 that used patient-centered care, shared decision-making principles, and there were zero. There was a systematic review of zero. So we adopted an approach that had never been tested and, that, and its effectiveness. There's a guy named Martin Underwood, and they published their work in, I think, 2019, and they actually showed that shared decision-making, when you put it all on the table to the patient, say it's all the same as Adam described, can actually lead to worse outcomes in the shared decision-making group versus the opposite comparator. And at that time, at that point, I'm like, what is this nonsense? But we've incorporated shared decision-making principles into another trial and we've modified it. And I think that near the end of Adam's discussion, what the way we modified it is, is that here, you know, these are the things that you prefer that you've shown interest in. And you have to tease that out of a patient because in many cases they don't know what they really need or want. And then you as a clinician come to them and you say, this is what I think you need. This is based on my expertise, based on what the literature says. Let's find a common ground and let's decide what works best for you. That's shared decision making. The, the mistake is made is if you just say, you know, it all, it's all the same thing, just like we said today, they all have similar effects and they do. But part of it is really ramping up what the patient feels they need and in, in, in embedding that to what you think the patient needs and then targeting those interventions. 
So can manual therapy fit that? I think so. I, you know, if you look at studies and what patients want, they want pain modulatory elements. They want to relieve their pain, but they also want what we do very poorly and that they want something they can do at home for pain modulation. I'm on the pain modulatory collaboratory group out of NIH and a recent review of the literature on what are the skills that patients are given to self-modulate pain. It's all but absent. And so whether that technically that's not manual therapy because you're not putting hands on something, but, but that's a method of helping the patient self-modulate. So all of those things I think can be baked into patient-centered care. Manual therapy can fit if that patient is very interested in that, but it can't be the only thing. And, and I think most of the modern manual therapists are not just using manual therapy and saying, this is what's going to fix you. It is going to be a segue to something else. And then there's the hopes that that will carry on and result in a lifestyle change for those patients. Adam, any last words on that one? No, I, I agree with everything that Chad said there, more or less. And um, I'll be quite interested to see, uh, you know, the results of what you find when you uh, you finish that um, review, Chad. So, yeah, great points that you made there. Um, it's interesting. I'll just just say something quickly. So, Chad, you, uh, you said there's a paper that shared decision making could lead to worse outcomes. Yes, it's, it's fascinating. That wasn't wasn't there a Lynn paper in 2019 that says these are the 11 things that you must do for musculoskeletal care. And like number one was, was patient centered care. So yeah. I'm, I'm a bit confused by that. Where, where does such a strong recommendation like that come from? Narratives. Uh, it's there are the, the challenge with narratives and publishing. There's a Greenlee paper too, that basically says that most of the patient centered elements are flawed and that you can actually lead to all kinds. It's, it's not that easy to actually do patient-centered care. It has a number of ways that it can be derailed. But you know, just a sidebar for a second, most journals have recognized that narratives or viewpoints or other elements, which don't have to be necessarily grounded into a comparative investigation in the literature, they are cited very well and they're very popular. They have high altmetric scores and, and they really drive discussion. So unfortunately, value-based care, it's built on two narratives of that passive, all, all passive therapies are, are low value. Why? I mean, where, what are you basing that on other than your opinion? And, and we've got all kinds of challenges associated with some of the narratives that have come out. Fascinating. Adam, sorry, mate, I, I cut you off before. No, 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 I was just about to say that, you know, again, it is that balanced between you know, patient expectations, trying to, you know, find that way in with the patient and, you know, including them in the decision-making process. But I also find, you know, like Chad said, there are some barriers there is that a lot of patients really don't know what is the best option to take. And so they are then, you know, pretty much at the whim of the clinician's biases as to which way to go, because the clinician then will make the decision and the choice for them. Um, mm. So again, if you've got a biased exercise clinician they're going to probably recommend exercise based strategies you've got a manual therapist based clinician they're going to recommend manual therapy based strategies and again as long as uh the patient is you know tied into that and has got trust and belief in the clinician then they're probably going to get a good outcome with either approach 
So, so patient-centered care is not simply relenting or surrendering to the patient's wants, desires, and needs. It's, it's, it's the expert, the clinician coming to the party as well and suggesting perhaps what they think might be effective. And then there's a meeting in the middle. There's a collaboration. There's a conversation around that. So I think that's an important point that this patient-centered care or shared decision-making is not simply just doing what they want all the time, which it's a nice thought, but it doesn't take away any of our expertise and knowledge that we've worked so damn hard to get over the years. Okay, yeah. so I think, I think we'll move on to the next question. We're going, it's taking a long time. This is going to happen. So, so why is manual therapy still so often seen and believed to be an essential part of physiotherapy care by patients and clinicians alike? And we're touching on societal expectations here. This is the culture of hands-on care that's associated with, with physiotherapy. Does this need to change for the good of our profession? Do we need to move beyond this, this, this thought process that manual therapy is a core component of physiotherapy? Chad? So I'm not surprised that manual therapy is sought out by patients. I mean, we've got 1.5 billion people with chronic pain in the world, 40% and my continent have chronic pain, 42% in South America. It's even higher in Europe. So I'm not surprised that patients are looking for something. I'm not surprised that we have an opioid epidemic because the pain is, I read yesterday that the 28% of the suicides in my continent are related to chronic pain issues. So I, I think I, I'm not surprised at all by the clinicians. I mean, by the patients. With respect to the clinicians, I think clinicians are looking for something. They're looking for an edge. They're looking to actually do good work and meaningful work. And it, and I mentioned earlier, it's very powerful for a patient to see change in their pain and change in their movement um, in, during given sessions. I think it's powerful for the clinician too and then meaningful for the clinician. Um, I think some clinicians get into it because manual therapy can be viewed as being quite sexy as an intervention. But I think others, such as myself, honestly believe that it can be a valuable contributor. And they've seen the literature and, you know, the 40 plus randomized trials that have shown a clinical effect. And I think so. I'm not surprised on the clinician side, too, that manual therapy has been elevated. I don't think it has the mystique. And the mystery and the um, the thoughts that it used to. Um, you know, I have the, the gift of being around since the 80s, 90s, and 2000s as a clinician. And I think we've gotten a little bit more pragmatic in how we view it. It's not, we're not completely there yet, but, um, you know, we used to elevate these clinicians on these pedestals. It's a master clinician. You know, if you really, if you've got a problem, you need to go to that person because they're going to fix you. And I don't think we do that as much anymore. Is it harmful for the profession? This is probably going to be, and I'm predicting where Adam and I differ. I, I do not think it's harmful for the profession. I think it's a way to improve the therapeutic alliance with the patient. I think it's something that we do. I mean, it, as a profession, we, I think we do a good job of building that relationship with our patient, pain modulating, moving the patient, talking lifestyle. Like the psychologist says, I, I think we have the ability to touch on the psychology and the physical aspect at the same time. And I think there's value there. So I don't think it's harmful for the profession. 
Adam. Yeah, I have a different view than what Chad uh, has, which is probably why we're having this uh, podcast. I, I find and I believe that, yes, manual therapy can help patients with pain. I just don't think the physio profession is best placed to actually provide it. I think we are diagnosticians. We are clinicians who have our skill set probably better placed elsewhere. I, again, and down to, you know, limitations in time as well is a huge factor, I think. I think the best effects with manual therapy come from when there is an hour session where everything is calm and relaxed, where the clinician is, you know, suitably, you know, filled out as well. The therapy, uh, the patient can come into a, a clinic environment, warm, fluffy towels. There's a little candle flickering in the corner bit of whale music going in the background as well nice lavender scented area you know and that hour is spent dedicated to the therapist applying the time and the consideration of doing all their hands-on treatments that patient i bet that patient comes out feeling fucking fantastic manual therapy in a physiotherapy environment though is normally done in a cold sterile clinical normally a cubicle with a little flimsy curtain uh, maybe in a hospital setting as well you know, they've got a cold plinth. The therapist is stressed out because they've got 24 patients still to see and they're 10 minutes running over at the moment and they haven't done any documentation for the rest of the day. Uh, they are doing their manual therapy probably in a 30-minute session. They're probably going to do it probably for about 10, maybe 15 minutes of that session. So it's all going to be a bit quick, rush, pokey and pressy and proddy. And therefore, I think, you know, the effects are probably not going to be as good as somebody going to get it in that nice other environment with the whale music etc so i truly do think that i say i think we need to look and say okay manual therapy can help but who's the best people to actually apply it and again you know what is the right cost for that because i find obviously physiotherapists normally charge a premium compared to other manual therapists is that fair to patients because you know do we see physiotherapists applying the manual therapy techniques any better than sharon who works in a spa you know, or, you know, somebody else who's done a weekend soft tissue massage course to, you know, they can charge probably less for probably just as effective outcomes. So my argument is, is that physiotherapy and manual therapy really need to think about separating, in my opinion. I think we need to be looking more towards other things where we are, you know, probably more our time is better spent rather than doing the 15 10 minutes a session of that pokey prosy stuff in a clinical environment chad what do you think about that well i mean that's adam's opinion i can't say anything about that um you know i could counter with we have certified personal trainers here you don't even have to have a degree for that you take a weekend course and you're able to take people through an exercise regimen long term i mean that's a correlate to what Adam is describing, should we then discard all of the exercise that we do as physical therapists because these certified personal trainers wouldn't have the debt that we incur from our education. We wouldn't have to mess around with the high costs associated with that. We could just give them to a personal trainer. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that, you know, I respect Adam's opinion. That's his opinion. And there is nothing that I'm going to say that's going to change his mind. And there's nothing that's going to say that's going to change my mind. Those ships have sailed. Um, but my, my feeling is this. And I think it's when used wisely, 
um, and appropriately, I think it can be an additional option for a physical therapist, just as psychological components, exercise, and, and in some rare cases, nothing. Sometimes the best thing to do with a patient is nothing. So I think all of those things are, are going to be contributions that we can provide as a profession. I think when somebody falls into one only, or, you know, this is the only thing I do is X. I, I think that is somewhat limiting, um, but that's my opinion. So, so Adam, if, if manual therapy should be left to the spa and, and the, the whale music clad places, then should exercise be given to the, the weekend warrior PTs? Well, it may surprise you when I say yes. I do think that is also an option as well. I, I, I truly think that physiotherapy should be acting more like a, a spoke, uh, not a spoke, a hub in a wheel. And they've got lots of other professions that they can sort of uh, refer out to. And they've got these spokes that they can send patients to. I think that's where physiotherapy skill set is. It's triaging. It's recognizing who is best suited for certain types of approaches exercise based yeah you need these 12 you just need to get moving for another 12 weeks a bit more that's going to sort you out i know this mate down here or i've got this uh, colleague down here who can do that for you keep you supervised keep you motivated then there's another patient who comes in i think you'd approach you'd be better off with the rubby dubby pokey stuff so go and see a colleague down that spoke and see how you go with that so you know i i, I think again it's it's acting more like as a, as a triage service physiotherapy you go and see the physio you get your assessment you get you start the process of you know education reassurance etc but when it actually comes to uh, doing the things spoke it out dish it out to other areas because you know the system is overloaded at the moment it's clogged up i mean in the nhs at the moment our waiting lists and thanks to covid are even even huge we cannot expect you know patients to be sat on waiting lists before they actually even get anybody to be seen to assess them to triage them because you know we are doing 12 weeks of rubby dubby pokey stuff or exercises you know so i just think we've got to look at working a bit smarter and i think you know when it comes to musculoskeletal conditions there are like chad said billions of people out there who need our assistance and help and if we're to keep them all for you know 12 weeks 24 weeks or whatever we're never going to get anywhere it's only going to get worse so, so I, I do think we need to refer out more so so physio is to become the new gps of musculoskeletal pain they come in they see us for a 15 minute 30 minute appointment and then we refer them to the appropriate party and then we touch base with them on a regular basis. So we use this sort of model of care where there is no such thing as a discharge. You know, we are we are keeping an eye on people with long term chronic conditions and we are, you know, we're just touching base with them. We're touching up. We're having a review, a bit like an orthopedic consultant would do. So I think there is a role there for physiotherapists to act more in that role. And say so when it actually comes to doing the treatments, use other professions who have got more time, less constraints less costs, et cetera, to the patient to use that more wisely. And it'll help our healthcare systems, I'm sure, massively. Yeah. So, so given, given that we know how much the therapeutic encounter and contextual effects and all of these sorts of things can influence clinical outcomes, do you think somebody going to a spa for back pain to have a massage there has the same contextual clinical interaction as going to an expert who's had five years training? Absolutely not. But so, if they so go and see the expert first, 
and then they're told to go and see the spa after mm. they've been given the reassurance, then I think it may do. Yeah, so, so entirely changing the job description of a physiotherapist. Mm, sort of. Not, not, <laughs> not entirely. <laughs> Chad, do you have any thoughts on that? You're starting to see, uh, first of all, I recognize that different systems around the world have their, their much, much different roles that the physios play in those systems. And, you know, I most, mostly know North America and we don't have a waiting list. And, but there are some organizations that are elevating the physical therapist to function at the top of their license. So they are functioning more as triage and they're referring to the PT assistant which tends to have an associate degree, so a two-year educational degree specific to um, physical therapy. So it's not a completely outlandish model. I think in a system such as the NHS or some other socialized elements where there is a pretty significant wait list, and that's kind of a misconception, by the way. Not all social systems have this huge wait list. I, I know NHS does, but you know Taiwanese system does not. Um, Singapore system does not. But I think in those systems, it may make more sense to modify the role of, of the physical therapist and, and then to refer out. Um, but so I don't, I don't object to it. Um, in my environment, I know there are a lot of uh, clinicians who spend seven years, seven to nine years in education that probably want to have that experience with the patient, that it's why they got into the profession. It's rewarding. So, you know, I, I think in some environments it's happening, in some environments it probably won't happen. Okay, let's let's move on to the final question, and this is this is a doozy to finish off with. So, health outcomes we know are complicated, multidimensional. How much do we think focusing on a specific form of care, for example, manual therapy, actually influences overall health outcomes? So, Adam, I'll throw this one over to you. Well, I'll answer very succinctly and clearly and short, which is unusual for me. I'll say it doesn't. You know, focusing on one aspect in isolation is useless. Good. Chad? Yeah, I appreciate the brevity. I, I also <laughs> think that if you're looking at influencing health outcomes, then there are some bigger fish to tackle on that. Um, social environments, public health issues, general comorbidities of the patient, all of those if you really want to make a, a big difference, you hit those. And I'm with Adam that one one intervention is not going to change the health status outcomes measures of patients. The way that we use, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on this because it's maddening, right? To to see this shared mechanisms across the board, no matter what a person is given, that their outcomes tend to be the same. And I think it has a lot to do with the outcomes more than it does the interventions. And, those outcomes are, are broad health status measures. So every little thing is going to be factored into that self-report measure that that patient actually communicates on. And I don't expect there to be a major change with any of the interventions. And you're starting to see the same thing even with surgery, that it's not influencing health status measures any more than a conservative approach. And if there's no more powerful placebo than surgery, then we know we've got something going on with those outcomes measures. They're very porous, they're very all-encompassing, and they're not probably not precise enough to, to, to tackle the 
specific effects that we use with any of our interventions. That's interesting. So have we been looking, have we been using the wrong outcomes uh, to measure the effects of everything we do? And, and so the whole picture becomes blurry. What is reality if, if, if the actual measures that we've been using aren't reflecting uh, the, the actual effects that we're trying to achieve? So I'm afraid to say something because it's blasphemous to say anything about outcomes. I'll get a visit from the Pope or something like that. But, but I mean, I've been open in saying that, no, there's a place for health status outcomes measures, but let's look closely at what they actually measure and what influences them. And, you know, early work was done in the 1990s that showed that there are other factors that influence those health status measures much more than our treatments. Our treatments are probably 10% of what makes a difference. And, and that's okay. As long as we accept that, that's fine. But if we, you know, we, we just need to be open and recognize that other factors influence that quite a bit. I'll get you to clarify, Chad. What's, just for everyone, what's the health status measure that you're referring to? Oswestry, Spotty, Coos, any of the legacy measures that are more health status related. They're more influenced by health status than they are actually by um, it, um, an, an action. Um, it would be the same as if you targeted self-report measures versus physical performance measures, you'll get two very different findings with those because the physical performance measures are more accurate measures of what the person does a self-report measure is more accurate of a measure of what a person thinks that can do. So they're two very different things. There's nothing wrong with it. They're, they are valid, but we just need to recognize that they're heavily influenced by other factors. Our recent study, when we looked at lumbar surgery, people received the same interventions. We looked at social factors. Social factors actually predicted 20 to 25% of the total outcome of that, just social factors whereas the treatment was just marginal in comparison. So as long as we know that, that's fine. You know, we're, we're combing our hair with a rake. Um, it, it's just not capturing the nuances of the little things that we might see in the clinic. Adam. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I have my top tips for, you know, making sure people have good health and low pain. Number one is don't be poor. Number two is don't be homeless. Number three is don't <laughs> live in a deprived area. Number four is don't be disabled. Don't have a, a dependent child. Don't be a lone parent. Don't have a poor job that pays you fucking low amounts of money that is quite stressful. Don't have an arsehole of a boss. You know, don't be a victim of neglect or social unfairness, etc. Those are all my top tips for, you know, having a nice, healthy lifestyle and being, you know, able and not having disability or pain. But what about getting too much yeah. manual therapy? <laughs> not, yeah, not much on manual therapy. <laughs> Funny enough, not that much on exercise in there either. <laughs> all right, beautiful. I think I think I like that as a as a culminating thought. Uh, I'll wrap it up. So I just want to say thank you both uh, so much for your time and bravery, really, for committing to a difficult and, let's face it, vulnerable conversation like this. So thank you. I, I thoroughly appreciate and respect you both. I just want to leave a bit of a closing comment. If something for us to make feel a little bit better about ourselves. So if Nobel Prize winning physicists still disagree 
amongst each other today passionately about the fundament, fundamental nature of reality, then we mustn't be too harsh on our profession or each other when disagreements emerge. In fact, isn't this a sign of a mature profession that we can have these difficult conversations? So disagreements arise in physiotherapy, I think, because human biology, pain behavior, and their subsequent interactions are wildly complex and doesn't lend itself to simple binary solutions. So let's endeavor to keep that in mind. So on that note, uh, thank you, Chad, and thank you, Adam. Thank you, Jared. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Adam. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Adam Meekins and Chad Cook. In the time that has elapsed since March 2021, when we recorded this conversation, the content discussed is still accurate and up to date. To download the infographic and reference list that accompanies this debate, please visit my website, www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.